0: Hey, everybody. Our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you rock, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROC empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROC content is free for residents. Get started at ROCK.AAOS.org. hello everybody and welcome back to yet another episode of the nailed it ortho podcast my name is dr cole and you are tuned into our board slash our oite review series featuring myself and dr spencer woolwine we are talking about some total orthoplasty. still we're talking about some complications in this episode as well as revision total orthoplasty. so we hope that you all are enjoying the series if you haven't already please leave us a rating tell one friend about this podcast that would help us out a bunch and without further ado let's go ahead and hop into today's topic
1: you are now listening to nailed
0: it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell
1: Cole yeah so um uh how let's say You're not concerned about infection, but you're worried more about aseptic loosening. How are those patients going to present to you?
0: Yeah, you know, those are, they're just going to come in saying they just kind of just have some mild knee discomfort, knees being bothering them, nothing like super crazy uh, when you get your labs, because just like you mentioned a little bit earlier, infection is... is... just like you mentioned a little bit earlier infection, you got to rule it out. You know, anytime a patient comes in complaining of new onset of of knee pain. So you get inflammatory labs and patient with aseptic loosening can have some normal inflammatory labs. And then you aspirate their knee also, just because you want to make sure for sure it's not infected and the aspiration is negative, Uh, but you get an X-ray and you may see some lucency around the implant or around the cement on X-ray. So pretty much you're going to have some mild knee discomfort Negative inflammatory labs, no, you know, negative aspiration, but on the x ray, you're going to see lucency around the implant or around the cement. Now, you know, it took me a while to understand a difference between these two, but how do patients with osteolysis after total knee arthroplasty present in, you know, comparison to aseptic loosening?
1: So, aseptic loosening is an actual loosening between the uh, metallic component, the cement and the bone. So, but the bone is otherwise relatively normal in, in quotes. Osteolysis, those patients still routinely have a, a stable cement bone uh, implant interface. But what has happened is uh, due to polyethylene wear and those polyethylene particles circulating around the synovial fluid. The joint is going to respond to this with a uh, an inflammatory reaction. And what that does with any inflammatory reaction, like we know, you're going to get kind of destruction of some of the surrounding tissues, and one of those is bone. And so you'll see round lytic lesions around the implant on x-ray, but not necessarily at the implant bone interface. It's going to be in like kind of the metaphyseal regions. And for whatever reason, the posterior femur is common. And so you're going to see this on the lateral uh, view. And uh, just like with aseptic loosening, they're ten, they tend to have normal inflammatory labs. They have a negative aspiration, but you're going to see lytic lesions around the bone rather than a lucency between the bone and the implant. That's what's going to differentiate those two. And so I, I kind of talked a little bit about it, but what's the uh, more boring basic science pathophysiology <laughs> behind osteolysis?
0: Yeah. So, you know, you're going to have When you have osteolysis, you're going to have a release of those kind of inflammatory cytokines that we talked to about way back when we did our basic science lectures. And so, you know, you're going to have an increase in TNF-alpha. You're going to have an increase in IL-6. IL-1 is going to be released. And all this is going to do is upregulate the rank ligand. And if you remember, if, you, if you've if you been listening since, I guess, since almost last year, yeah, since last year, it's almost a year now, uh, if you've been listening, uh, when you have an upregulation of rank ligand, you're going to get some osteoclast mediated bone resorption. And this is what gives you those cystic lesions appearance in the periarticular bone. Uh, again, so you're going to get this, you know, upregulated, up-regulated rank ligand, osteoclast mediated bone resorption, and you have an increase in the cystic lesions in the periarticular Particular bone, and and one thing to note that you know these macrophage cells they absorb particles um, that are smaller than ten millimeters, um, which is which is kind of large. You think about it, um, but um, macrophages uh, they they absorb particles smaller than 10, 10 millimeters. Now, what are some polyethylene you know we're talking about wear. we talked about osteolysis um so what are some polyethylene factors that are associated with the rates of wear
1: uh this one is one that kind of always i i guess i just never really like sat down and took the time to remember the difference between like manufacturing <laughs> methods and sterilization and radiation and all of that stuff and so um, Some of the factors that result in changes in the rate of wear in polyethylenes, yeah. uh, the primary one is going to be sterilization and manufacturing method. Those are the two that they like to test on. Um, there's also uh, increased wear seen if there's a mobile bearing. We briefly talked about that in I think our first total knee lecture, where yeah. some total knees are mobile bearing, meaning it doesn't actually clip into the tibial component. It articulates with both the tibia and femur versus a uh, fixed bearing component which you actually have to mallet into the tibial component to get it to click in place and it's stable. Um, malalignment uh, is going to also uh, lead to changes in pressure uh, placement throughout the knee. so you might have more pressure on the medial side versus the lateral side. And then cement debris, and uh, this is one, one of my mentors I'm currently working with now. When he was writing questions for the OITE, he was always most proud of um, what is the most common type of wear, and it's third-body debris uh, or third-body uh, wear uh, in a total joint, and basically what that means is um, something, whether it's cement debris, uh, bone you didn't fully clear out, or something else that was kind of left behind in the joint that can actually articulate between the metallic femur and the uh, polyethylene that causes uh, third body wear. So um, they they like to ask uh, this in either a chart sort of uh, form or a table sort of form, but um, they talk about sterilizing polyethylene in. Uh, just regular air is that preferred or not
0: yeah i I didn't know how how uh how else to word the question to get the point across i made it a very direct question but no um sterilizing polyethylene and free air is not the preferred method because this leads to free radical formation which can then lead to oxidative degradation which in turn leads to increased rates of polyware, which in turn leads to increased revision rates which we don't want. So sterilization of the polyethylene in free air is not the preferred method. That is why, you know, a lot of these implants, they'll come in like steel tight, you know, um, um, packaging when, when it's time to, you know, unravel the packages. Um, So in, in what technique or what techniques can be used to minimize free radical formation? Because we know we don't want free radicals because again, that's going to lead to oxidative degradation and increased polywear.
1: Yeah, the first thing that these manufacturers are going to do is sterilize these polyethylene components in an inner environment. So ethylene oxide, gas plasma, or they'll also talk about um, like a nitrogen, uh, like sterilizing in nitrogen or uh, some other uh, gas that does not have oxygen in it. Um, that that is going to help minimize free radicals because free radicals are a result of oxidative degradation and oxygen free radicals. So if it's in an inert environment, you decrease that risk. And then some things that you can do after it is sterilized is something called remelting versus annealing. And what remelting does is it actually uh, changes the polyethylene to the amorphous state or uh, actually above the melting point because it's re-melting. So you actually melt the polyethylene down and then uh, cause it to harden back up into its crystalline state. And what that does is it releases free radicals from it, but it reduces the fatigue toughness of the poly. So it's not... uh, preferred because it, the fatigue toughness is what you like to see in a polyethylene. That's going to, uh, withstand a lot of cycles of use. Um, so what a lot of companies do is it's called annealing, which you heat it to a higher temperature, but it's below the melting point. So you don't actually change from their crystalline to the amorphous state, but, uh, it leaves more free radicals behind than remelting. So you have to weigh the risks and benefits of each of these. So do you keep some of the free radicals, but improve the wear characteristics, or do you get rid of all the free radicals and decrease the wear characteristics? And then there's other things that people do, which is like adding vitamin E, which is a Uh, antioxidant. So if you're annealing, then you will add vitamin E since you have more free radicals left behind. And so it's just a balance. And um, unless you are taking your orthopedic residency, and then you're going to go and use it for uh, biomechanical engineering or implant design, a lot of this stuff is just kind of knowledge for the test because you're going to find an implant company that you like to use, and I doubt that the implant company that you choose is going to be based on their annealing versus remelting techniques <laughs> in polyethylene. So, yeah, um, yeah, just know this for sure. the test and un- understand how it affects the polyethylenes that you choose. And
0: this episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident. It's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. ROCK is an all in one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at ROCK.AAOS.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum. And even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics and remember residents never pay to access rock content get started today at rock.aos.org
1: um then uh what we talk about these days is high uh highly cross-linked polyethylenes how do we increase the cross-linking of the polyethylenes
0: yeah, so instead of irradiating it in air, they'll irradiate it in gamma or use an electron beam to irradiate the polyethylene. And what it'll, what this does is this, in what this does is that this improves the wear properties of the polyethylene. So, gamma or electron beam irradiation—that's uh, kind of that's one of the techniques. And um, and this is another thing where I was reading, I was like, man, this is this is getting into the weeds, but I saw it on like a couple different. Uh, a couple of different like, you know, places where you read for total joints. So I included in here, but is there any difference between Ram extrusion or compression molding one processing, uh, processing the polyethylene?
1: So it took me a long time to kind of understand what they were talking about, but when you have Ram extrusion or compression molding, you get similar wear rates but compression molding has a lower susceptibility to fatigue cracking and crack propagation. And um, I think the, I mean, obviously, this is one thing I learned is how polyethylenes are made in a um, kind of a monetarily are economically favorable way for companies is they just have a gigantic sheet of highly linked polyethylene, and then the components are cut out of that. And so Rambar extrusion is kind of what it sounds like. You have the polyethylene and it's Uh, kind of a ram bar pushes into it to uh, form the mold that you want versus compression molding which is not a ram bar extrusion of it but it's a slower compression of the polyethylene into the shape that you want it to be in and um, and what that does is it like I said it has a lower susceptibility to fatigue cracking because it. It's a more controlled process. The, the best way to make a polyethylene is actually to make them completely individually rather than cutting them from a large sheet of polyethylene. So if you have a, if there's companies out there that make each poly individually from start to finish, that is best for wear characteristics, free radical optimization, um, uh, kind of keeping them sterile, all of that stuff, it's just less process or it's more process, but less complications with it. Um, and so then, uh, we, we talked about it earlier with the, uh, things you want to avoid for patellar maltracking, but, um, they, it is a complication of total knees and sometimes does require a, uh, revision, um, if you have patellar maltracking, what happens to the Q angle?
0: Yeah you know we put this in there for I guess repetition purposes, but this is going to increase the Q angle, which we know is bad you know increasing Q angle does not do good things for patella maltracking. it does bad things. it makes the patella it, it increases the pull of the quadriceps of the, the pull of the quadriceps on the patella laterally leading you at a higher chance for having a sublux or you know just frankly dislocate. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, might as well just mention it one more time, but what are the component positions that can lead to an increased Q angle and thus lead to increased patellar maltracking?
1: So uh, the things to increase your Q angle is uh, change the uh, uh, component position. So like we talked about, internal rotation was bad, external rotation is good lateralization of the patellar component is bad medialization of the patellar component is good and then also overstuffing of the patellofemoral joint can lead to patellar maltracking and so you want to check how thick your patella is I previously would check the thickness of the patella with the calipers um, in a total knee and now I don't. Um, I tend to just take about 12 millimeters off the patella and use a 10 millimeter uh, patellar component, which to me is, I can't uh, overstuff if I use a smaller patellar component than what I resect off the, the patella. So I don't usually measure it now, but you can measure like a 24 millimeter patella. Then you take off 12 millimeters and use a 10 millimeter implant, then your patella is smaller than it was before. So you will avoid overstuffing. And uh, if you do have to unfortunately take a patient back, which we all will at some point in our careers for a revision total knee, what are some of the approaches you're going to use?
0: Yeah. And we may have, I think we mentioned this, we definitely did in our first one, but we'll mention it again. Um, Ideally, you know, if they have, if they had a prior medial patellar arthrotomy, you can go through the same incision. Uh, you avoid uh, you avoid trying to make multiple uh, incisions, you you know, at least, uh, you know, with this total knee arthroplasty. And if you do, you want to have a big enough skin bridge as well. Those are all the important things to know about, especially for wound healing purposes. Um, but but some approaches used in revision. Total knee arthroplasty is a medial peripatellar arthrotomy, which is you know popular used uh, or used a, a lot. And when you do this, you want to be able to make good, you know, medial and lateral flaps, and you do this by taking the fascia along. So you want to leave the superficial fascia uh, intact when you're making your medial and lateral flaps, because the blood supply to the skin, you know, goes, you know, through the fat and all those other feeder vessels. Um, so when you're doing these revision total knee you're gonna it takes a little bit longer to do the approach. You have to remove all the scar tissue. Um, in some cases, you may have to do a lateral retinacular release in order to evert the patella. Um, you know, you try to remove all the, you know, synovial tissue, you release, you take out the uh, medial and lateral gutters, um, you do your proximal uh, medial tibial subperiosteal dissection that you uh, do when you're doing a uh, you know, primary total knee. And those are all the things that you, you know, at least should, should do first before you had to do some of the more. Uh, advanced, you know, some of the extensile approaches, and one is the rectus snip, and that's where you make a, a cut 45 degrees along with the uh, uh, for the quadriceps tendon. You can also do a quadriceps turn down, a banana peel uh, that we talked about earlier, uh, as well as a tibial tubercle osteotomy. In the tibial tubercle oste- osteotomy is done uh, best in, or is best in cases where there's adequate bone stock. You know, if they don't have a lot of bone or good bone or very osteoporotic, um, you may, you know, tubercle osteomy may not be the best because you, you know, you want that bone to heal back to stable bone. Um, So what are some techniques to deal with constrained and unconstrained bone defects with revision total arthroplasty? Because, you know, we need to do our our approach, and we need to get the old implants out. And sometimes, unfortunately, when you get the old pin- implants out, some bone may come with it, which you try to avoid, but uh, sometimes it's how it goes. So, what are some techniques to deal with constrained and unconstrained bone defects when you're doing a revision to the,
1: the So, constrained and unconstrained, just kind of a brief definition of those. Uh, um, basically, a constrained defect means that there is an intact cortical bone uh, circumferentially around that uh, defect, whereas unconstrained defects do not have a fully circumferential uh, cortical bone um, kind of buttress around them. So uh, you're going to treat these differently since the options you have for you rely on that cortical bone to be intact or not. So, if they have an intact cortical bone uh, buttress or a contained uh, defect, if they're small, you can typically just uh, put in kind of cancellous bone chips or cement. If they are large, then you're going to tend to move towards what's called an an ingrowth cone. And what these cones do is They provide a metallic uh, kind of buttress where you have an intact cortical rim, and then you have metaphyseal bone, and then you have your defect. When you put in your cone, you're creating a rigid structure around that defect, so now you can... um, fix your tibial component, and I've really only used them in the tibia. You can do all of the same stuff with the distal femur as well. It just tends to be more commonly done in the tibia, but you have this cone which is a stable structure that fills the defect that um, is too large for cement or bone graft. And then the non-contained defects, that's when you're going to tend to maybe make a step cut, in the femur or the tibia and use metallic augments so that you get a good metal bone interface. You can use cones depending on the size of it. If part of the cone does overlap with an intact cortical uh, buttress circumferentially, then the cone will still do its job. If it's not uh fully contained within the cortical buttress and then if you have massive bone loss or a tumor then you're moving more towards an endoprosthesis so um small defects can sell as bone or cement larger defects you're looking at augments or cones
0: thank you all for listening we hope you learned something and do not forget to hit that subscribe button and we'll see you the next episode